Well, you might have heard about this new development in Surrey, all part of something called Innovation Boulevard. And it's a little different. And we're going to talk about who might be attracted to this and why uh, this is being developed, proposed in that area. And joining me on the line to do that is Grant Murray. He is the Senior Vice President of Sales at Concord Pacific. Grant, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, talk a little bit about this project for people who haven't heard about it. It's a new way of looking at uh, live, work, and play and doing it all in one place. Yeah, I think what we're doing is we're building the eighth, uh, seventh and eighth high-rise in, in a uh, master plan community right at the King George Station, uh, which is next to everything that's being developed over the last 10 years in uh, Surrey City Centre. And the, uh, the whole approach is to give... Uh, uh, millennials and such an opportunity to have a, a workspace uh, within the the building that they can go to and not have to go to work so often and uh, maybe do something from home in our campus work lounge. And the idea being for people who work at home, I suppose too, that uh, you you still are able to get out of your living room and get out of uh, your condominium or your home space and have that division between where you work and where you live. Exactly, and and you know for a lot of people. Uh, Maybe they don't want to go into work five days a week. Maybe they only want to go to work uh, three days a week. It's right near the SkyTrain station, but they, uh, you know, they might be a young family. They might have a child, and they're, the, the child is acting up. And you can what, what's really great is you can be on a phone call. Uh, the the building is tech savvy enough that you can walk down the hallway, get in the elevator on a, on a on your cell phone, not lose the call, and go to the workstation and uh, do some work in private. So how does it reflect then cost? If people buy into this, does it cost more than to also have access and to be part of the workspace? I think what's really great is that uh, we generally, when we build a master plan community, we build it in conjunction with uh, other buildings all at the same time. So we we end up sharing the amenities between uh, four towers and like 1,600 units. So the the fees, the monthly fees are kept down. Uh, because of the uh, the number of units that are in the complex that share, in this case, 110,000 square feet of amenity space. And how do you make sure that the space stays professional or it doesn't get run down or it's 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 always kept in a clean and organized way? Well, I think uh, most of the, 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 the modern strata councils are getting pretty organized. It is up to the owners in the building to kind of regulate how how everybody conducts themselves. But by and large, uh, you know, I've, I spent the last 10, was 10, 12 years ago before, since I gave up my home and I'm a baby boomer. And, uh, you, know, you know, we have these all these different amenities that we, we can pretty much control ourselves. And, and what's nice about it is we have a very large component of owner-occupiers, and they tend to really uh, look after the building a, a lot better by having a, a greater concentration of people who live there and, and, and enjoy that. Not saying renters are bad, but, but you know, they, they do keep uh, everybody in line a lot better. And I, and I think in most cases they enjoy the, uh, the added benefits that, that all these amenities uh, add to the uh, building. And, and you mentioned uh, what group kind of you fit into. Is there a particular group that a project like this is, is targeting? Is it millennials? We, well, it- we're, I mean, um, it's no big secret that millennials are now bigger than, than, the, than the baby boom generation. Uh, so we are targeting a lot to the younger millennials. But in a lot of cases, too, there's, there's retiring baby boomers that uh, are actually not working as much anymore. They're becoming consultants and uh, they, they can kind of half work from home and then they'll go to, 
some different job functions and uh, likewise they, they don't want the big house anymore they'll downsize into a two or three bedroom unit in in the in the complex and enjoy the you know the the same attributes that the uh, the younger millennials do so it's a great mix between the the two cultures and what kind of a response have you had as far as people wanting to to be part of this project fantastic we brought the first building out in october and and probably sold out 90% of the building within three weeks. Uh, we're just launching the second tower uh, of the final of the eight altogether um, uh, this uh, this month, uh, pretty much since Chinese New Year till uh, the next couple of months. So, yeah, it's the response has been phenomenal, and uh, we're excited about uh, our next project in Surrey. All right. So, so in a tower like this, uh, with all of these amenities and this workspace and such, can you uh, give us an idea on what, what what would it cost for somebody, say, a one bedroom or a two bedroom? Yeah, we we don't uh, we we most of our suites are fairly large in comparison to some others that are going a, say a different route and offering uh, micro suites. Uh, most of our suite our suites start around five hundred uh, uh, five hundred square feet in a one bedroom. And they, 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 everything is running in around eight hundred dollars a square foot. So you're looking around uh, three eighty to four twenty uh, for people to start out with a one bedroom suite. All right, and I mentioned too that this is part of something called Innovation Boulevard. So will people in that area then see more projects like this? Uh, I believe so. I think uh, the advent of uh, Simon Fraser. Uh, you've got uh, uh, you know the, the advent of uh, UBC with the research facility, Innovation Boulevard, the RCMP headquarters, uh, the, the the great expansion of all the tech savvy stuff around the medical and health around the city uh, hospital has really enhanced. Uh, you know, the number of professionals that already live in our existing five uh, buildings that are complete today. And what about parking? Because it does seem that uh, this is still, uh, if not everybody is going to be working from home, granted there is transit there, but it's still yeah, somewhere uh, where people drive and, and will have vehicles. Yeah, we, well, uh, Concord is the first company that even came out with EV parking eight to ten years ago when it wasn't that popular. We now do 100% of our buildings with EV parking, so we're, we're a, a leader in that technology as well in terms of providing that. But we do have a one-to-one ratio, so uh, parking is available for almost all suites in the building. All right. Uh, where can people let the uh, presentation center is open if people want to get a better look? That's on yeah, on it, King George. Yeah, it's right at the right at the King George Skytrain station. You can virtually fall off the, uh, <laughs> the station and right into the building. So it is open eleven to five daily, almost every day of the year. All right. Uh, interesting project for sure. Uh, Grant, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. All right, you too. The BCSBCA is calling on pet owners and people who train dogs particularly to toss shock collars, to not use these devices as a training tool. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Karen Van Haften, who is the BCSBCA Senior Manager of Behaviour and Welfare. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I've seen you talking about this, and I know Global has covered the story as well. But walk us through what it is with these devices, what they do, and what the concerns are. Uh, So shock collars work by delivering an uncomfortable um, electronic stimulation to the dog's skin. Uh, And they are 
readily available in BC. They're legal to use in BC, uh, but there is a growing body of evidence showing that they actually do acute and long-term harm to dogs' welfare, and they actually contribute to behavior problems that people would rather avoid, like fear and anxiety disorders and aggression. And who's doing the research, or how do we know that those are the effects that are happening with dogs? So you can take a look on our website. We have um, we've collected the relevant research together in one place. It's uh, professional resources and position statements on electronic callers. So there's uh, about ten studies here that you can read through. We have links to them all. It's research groups usually associated with universities in variety of countries, variety of different uh, different cultures that this information has been gathered. And uh, you're asking people to, to take the pledge to stop uh, using these devices. Uh, I know uh, Jordan Armstrong with Global uh, covered this story on Friday. Uh, he was speaking to a dog trainer uh, who swears by them and says that he uses one that offers or delivers a much lower shock that's not that uncomfortable. Uh, is it possible that there are versions of this that aren't as harmful as others? So... I mean, that, that is something that you will hear a lot, and it's, that's a really common response that we've had to our campaign, actually, is, sure, some people use shock collars and they're abusive to dogs, but my special brand is not abusive, and my dog loves it. Um, it the evidence just really doesn't back that up. Um, and really, like, if you think about the learning science, a dog is not going to work to avoid a stimulus that it does not find uncomfortable. Uh, electronic shock is the laboratory standard aversive stimulus for, um, for doing psychological research. Shock, if you can feel the shock, it's aversive at some level. So it's, it's just really not a very good argument. It's possible. There, there was a study um, done in the UK that compared about 20 different shock collars and found that they deliver actually very different levels of voltage to the dog's neck, and it's often unpredictable compared to what the package claims that they do. Uh, so we do know that some shock collars deliver more of a stimulation than others, and it's not really in the owner's control how much stimulation their dog is getting. Um, but the argument that some shock collars are humane and some shock collars are not humane is uh, false. Uh, so what would you say to somebody then? What would be the alternative or a way to perhaps get the same results without using one of these devices? Yeah, so it really depends because these devices are marketed by some trainers and the manufacturers themselves. They're really marketed as this easy fix for anything your dog is doing that you don't like. So my recommendations change a lot depending on what the problem is. Um, the, one of the most common reasons that people turn to these devices is uh, for off-leash work uh, to train a really reliable recall, which is important for dog safety. Um, and there was a study done in 2014 that took two groups of dogs. One group was trained on a recall with a shock collar by expert trainers. They, these trainers were chosen by the Electronic Collar Manufacturers Association in the UK. So some of the best shock collar trainers out there. And uh, they were compared with a group of dogs that was trained on recall with rewards. Uh, so starting in a low distraction environment, giving a recall cue, giving a reward if the dog comes back to you for the recall cue, and then gradually proofing that and working up to more and more distracting environments. The two groups had exactly the same efficacy. Dogs learned that cue in the same amount of time. But the dogs in the shot collar group had all these physiologic and body language signs of stress. So they were uh, lowered ears, panting, yelping, 
um, and the dogs in the rewards-based group didn't have those consequences. So if you, again, look at our website, we have created a video uh, on how to train a recall queue, a reliable recall queue using rewards, and that's science-based. It's been shown to be just as effective as using a shot collar. It's uh, interesting, uh, indeed. And uh, I'm, in no way, I'm not uh, taking the side of this, but it's just what I'm hearing from people who, who are questioning this. What, what about a scenario where somebody, say, lives in a, a condominium or a townhouse, and the issue is a dog that is constantly barking at every little sound uh, out there? And if somebody uses the argument that the only way we can stop the dog from barking incessantly while we're not home is to use a device like this, what would you say to somebody in that scenario? Yeah, I, I would say that the easy fix is not necessarily the most welfare-friendly fix. So a dog that is barking all day when home alone has a welfare issue. And it actually makes me really sad when people use Band-Aid solutions for that kind of thing because the, the dog is barking for a reason, right? They may have separation anxiety. They may be noise-phobic to something in the environment. They may be understimulated and, and need more enrichment in their day and just using a device that punishes the symptom of that suffering is is not really a very good idea um so what i usually uh, i'm a veterinary behaviorist and when i treat cases like that my first step is to find out why is the dog barking and then we treat the underlying cause you know if it's territorial aggression we will um maybe put the dog in a more protected environment where they're not stimulated by uh, sounds moving around. I might use a white noise machine or some other kind of ambient noise to reduce the number of triggers for a noise-phobic dog. Uh, separation anxiety, we can do gradual departure training and teach the dog that people leaving is not scary and means that good things will happen for them and change that emotional response. But just applying a device that punishes the symptom is, is not what I would recommend. All right. And I, and I guess the message exactly that's getting out there is that there are other options. So there are other ways of, of at least trying to deal with behavioral issues or issues with your dog. Absolutely. So um, uh, and if, if you have trouble finding those resources yourself, the studies have shown that people when people have behavior problems with their dogs, they usually don't reach out to professionals. They usually try to answer those questions themselves. And then the other problem in BC is sometimes they reach out to professionals and dog training is an unregulated industry in BC. You don't need to have any education, experience, abilities to call yourself a dog trainer in BC. So sometimes people reach out and they find the wrong kind of advice. So um, talk to your veterinarian is a really good step. The SPCA to help combat that problem. We started our animal kind dog trainer referral program this year. So you can look at our website to find trainers that do actually have a lot of education and experience and use humane science-based methods that will be best for you and your dog. Uh, so, so reaching out in the right ways can connect you with people who can really show you um, some very powerful, effective tools that are good for you and your dog. Uh, would you like to see uh, that uh, better regulation? Because uh, you raise an interesting point about dog trainers. Would you like to see it that there is regulation that not anybody can just call yourself that? I, I mean, I think that would be nice. I think dogs deserve to um, to have industries around them that um, that are good for their welfare and understand the latest science in these things. It, it does make me very sad that there are a lot of trainers out there recommending things that we know are bad for dog welfare. Uh, so, yeah, that would be great in the future. And as far as the, the shot caller, uh, right now it's a, it's a pledge, it's a request for people. I know some other jurisdictions have banned them. Uh, is the SPCA pushing to get an actual ban on these uh, devices? 
Uh, I mean, that's something we would be, again, open to in the future, but we, we're not aware of, um, it, it's not probably realistic on the short-term political spectrum, but I mean, that, that is something that uh, we, we would support. All right. Uh, it's an interesting topic for sure. Uh, Dr. Van Heften, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for being here to talk about this this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Well, when we talk transportation, a lot of the conversation has been dominated by the idea of a SkyTrain to UBC, uh, by the idea of other transit projects in Metro Vancouver. But a Delta City councillor says it's time to start looking at the idea of a Canada Line extension south of the Fraser River. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Dylan Kruger. He is a Delta City councillor. Dylan Kruger, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, you wrote about this. It uh, was a guest piece uh, in Daily Hive. Uh, what would you like to see as far as transit options coming to uh, south of the Fraser? We've had some really exciting projects coming up in Metro Vancouver. You touched on a few of them just there. In December, the Mayor's Council approved the extension of the SkyTrain in Surrey down to Langley City Centre. And we just heard two weeks ago about the extension on Broadway Corridor down to UBC. As a Delta counselor, I, I support both of these initiatives, even though they're not directly in Delta, because I recognize that when we have improvements in Metro Vancouver Transit, it serves the entire region. So now that we're moving forward with these, my pitch that I wrote about in Daily Hive was let's start talking about moving forward with the Canada Line extension, specifically south of the Fraser. Uh, communities in south of the Fraser have been historically very underserved by transit. Translake is admitted to that as, as well. It's not a secret, you know, when we're talking about Delta, Surrey, Langley, White Rock, uh, the whole Highway 99 corridor, uh, people aren't getting out of their cars because nobody wants to take two buses and a SkyTrain to get to their final destination. It comes down to number of transfers. So my pitch is, you know, now that we're looking forward to the next project after UBC and Langley, let's talk about getting people out of their cars on the Highway 99 corridor, which also happens to have the George Massey Tunnel, which is the worst traffic bottleneck in all of BC. Uh, right, which I think some might say, well, don't we need to deal with the tunnel before we start talking about Canada Line? Yeah, for sure. And I don't think it's either or. In fact, I think we have an opportunity now, you know, since the province is uh, moving, uh, you know, taking a bit of a break and doing a, a, a more thorough consultation on this uh, tunnel replacement project. Let's talk about rapid transit. If we're going to be spending the billions of dollars anyway, um, let's have some coordination here. I you know I was in support of the previous plan because we were going to have two dedicated bus lanes in either direction, as well as pedestrian and cycling space, which we don't have now. But having said that, you know, we're going in a different direction. So, my point is, let's have the discussion about, you know, ma- making a plan here to include rapid transit. Uh, and when we talk specifically about Canada Line, so as it stands now, if, if people aren't familiar with the Canada Line, it goes to the airport, it goes uh, down number three road in Richmond. What uh, what specific extension would you like to see? So, so I'm interested in Canada Line specifically because of number of transfers, as I mentioned earlier. I really believe in that ease of access when we're talking about a viable, accessible option. Particularly for seniors, Canada Line has been a huge success, but the one kind of unintended consequence is Delta. In Delta, we used to have this direct 601 bus, which took people from uh, our suburban communities directly into downtown. Uh, One thing that really came up in the fall election is a lot of senior citizens who are really weary about getting onto a bus, getting off of a bus, getting onto a SkyTrain. That's why I like Canada Line. But having said that, you know, I'm, I'm more ambivalent to the method as long as we're starting the conversation about a solution. Some people talk about at-grade LRT down Highway 99. Uh, I think it's just important to recognize, you know, our population in the Lower Mainland is going to be increasing by 1.1 million people by 2041. 
Most of those people are going to be going into our south of the Fraser communities. We're a rapidly growing area. So we have to plan for that population growth, but also address the existing congestion. As I said, the worst traffic bottleneck in all of B.C., Right. Um, as it is now, though, I guess depending on where you're coming from in Delta, if you were to get on a bus in Ladner, it's only one transfer, isn't it? You transfer onto the Canada Line in Richmond and then go downtown. Yeah, one to downtown. And we're, we're pretty good at get, about getting people into downtown from, uh, from our suburban communities, not so much about getting people from community to community. And the other big thing, you know, in the last 10 years with the way the, the housing affordability crisis has been, but also uh, in terms of leases for businesses, a lot of businesses are moving out of downtown into central Surrey, into Burnaby, uh, and getting people to those connections. Now we're looking at, you know, two buses and a SkyTrain with some weird wait times in the middle. Uh, so those are the other types of issues I'd like to address. Right. Uh, and one of the issues uh, the, the, that uh, I, I guess looking into the future, like you said, there are people that are moving to these communities and, and the shift in demographics. Is there a concern, though, if we were uh, looking at Canada Line or looking at that kind of uh, technology that it would really quickly be at capacity? Well, we saw that with the with, with the existing Canada Line. Actually, it exceeded everybody's expectations. Uh, we We had to really fight to to get that line through a lot of mayors said oh it'll never be used and uh but it, it was it, it's it's already been a tremendous success so uh in, so much in fact that they're ordering new canada line cards and we're even talking about can we extend the platforms but there are some of those um physical restraints with the canada line simply because of the way that it was built which is why you know it, it, it's more about starting the conversation and i'm not pretending to be the expert on on, on transit here, but I'd like to see those feasibility studies done to see, you know, what, what exactly is that method. And it's not just for Delta, as I said, you know, we're talking about a, a corridor that services about 100,000 commuters a day. So it, it's a pretty, pretty uh, large population. And do you get the sense that the south of the Fraser region is getting more attention now? As you mentioned, it's really underserviced when it comes to transit. The CEO of TransLink has raised that. Do you think it's kind of turning a corner in that it is starting at least to get the attention? I do think so. And we had Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink, come to a Delta Chamber luncheon a couple of months ago, and, and he admitted to the fact himself. So a disproportionate amount of the funding in the 10-year investment plan is going to south of the Fraser communities. We're going to see improvements in, in bus services, which I think is fantastic. But again, if we want to get serious about getting people out of their cars, get, getting those people who otherwise would not be taking transit, I think we need to see this, uh, this rapid transit technology, whether it's LRT or Canada Line, uh, moving forward. Uh, but one of the issues, so if you look back at the old Portman Bridge, one of the issues with transit on that bridge was because it was such a bottleneck, you couldn't stick to a schedule. Uh, if we're still dealing with the current Massey Tunnel, wouldn't that also be an issue even with more rapid transit? Uh, in terms of bus connections, is that what you mean? Right, that they wouldn't, you never know how much congestion there's going to be on either side of that tunnel. So a bus, I would imagine, it would be, there would be a difficulty there in keeping to a schedule. Yeah, exactly. But uh, important to, to realize as well that in the, in the previous plan, we did have those dedicated bus lanes that would have gone all the way down Highway 99, which would help as well. And there will be uh, challenges as there always are. But but that's that, that also highlights why we need to move forward with with some sort of tunnel replacement. The other reason that I'm really encouraged is, you know, the premier has said that, you know, the reason that we're uh, going back to the drawing board is that we haven't had consensus amongst the mayors. Well, we, we saw just last week, Mayor Harvey in Delta uh, has brought together all of the mayors in the south of the Fraser Corridor from, from Richmond, Surrey, uh, White Rock, as well as our First Nations in Tawas and, and Squamish to come together and say, okay, let's, let's, let's agree on a solution 
that all of us can bring forward to the Premier and say, this is what we want. And I, I, from what I hear, they're, they're all pretty bullish on making sure that we have that rapid transit component as well. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for your time and for chatting about this this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Appreciate it. We are going to talk some BC politics. We'll also take a look at the by-election that's happening in Burnaby tomorrow. And if you've been paying attention to what's happening at the legislature, then you likely know about reports, rebuttals, more reports and promises of, yes, even more reports when it comes at looking at the activities of the clerk and the sergeant at arms at the BC legislature. So let's bring in Richard Zussman. He is Global BC's online journalist based at the legislature. Richard, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Hard to keep track of the reports, <laughs> rebuttals, reports on the rebuttals, and what happens next. But where are we right now? Who doesn't love reports, right? <laughs> so um, where we're at right now is that uh, Speaker Daryl Plekis just presented his second report, which was response uh, to the response from Speaker, or sort of from Clerk Craig James and Sergeant Arms Gary Lenz to the original Plekis report. What's going to be done now is uh, tomorrow... Uh, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee will make a decision on a retired judge who will take a look at those three reports, spend some time evaluating the information in them, and then make uh, a recommendation back to the Legislative Assembly on what should happen with uh, James and Lenz in terms of their job status at the legislature. So right now the pair are on administrative leave with pay. Uh, that's been going on now for more than three months. Taxpayers have spent in the tune of about $150,000 uh, for the salaries of these two men while these reports and investigations are going on. All of this is very separate from the RCMP uh, and special prosecutor investigation going on on the side to look at criminality. What these reports are looking at is, are, is this egregious spending at the legislature that you know a lot of people are concerned about around lavish trips, suits, luggage, a wood splitter, a trailer. So this retired judge will look at these reports, make an assessment, and the decision could be made should these men remain on leave with pay, should they be reinstated to their job, should they be uh, moved to leave without pay, or should they be terminated? So that's where we're at now. In terms of the next steps, I mentioned those investigations. They're separate. You mentioned another report. Uh, Speaker Daryl Plekis's uh, Chief of Staff, Alan Mullen, said the office is now working on another report around workplace culture and people who allege they were fired from the legislature because they tried to speak up against uh, James and Lenz. You know, it, it just keeps piling up. Lenz and James have denied all wrongdoing in this. I think that the independent retired judge is a good step here because this has become a very he said, she said, very personal. It's going to be nice to have somebody who has eyes outside the legislature to look at all this and, and make a determination about what's going on here. Uh, definitely will be good in that sense. And I think what's what's come of this, and we touched on it yesterday, and Mike Campbell talked about this yesterday, even if what we're talking about is, in fact, nothing criminal, uh, they were following the rules, they didn't do anything technically wrong, what has come out of this and what a lot of people are saying is, well, then the rules need to change because these expenses, some of them were absolutely ridiculous. And yes, you can, you can go behind the, but we were allowed to... To do this we didn't do anything wrong if that's the case and people have been emailing me with examples in other um, government agencies and other places saying this happens all the time this needs to stop yeah and i think the rules are changing for sure jill 
uh, this is way late to change these rules because we've seen all this misspending. But we're going to see, you know, no doubt um, freedom of information accessibility to uh, senior members of the legislature in terms of being able to find out their expenses. I expect the government to go further and just post all the expenses online like they do for MLAs. I think there's going to have to be special approvals for foreign trips. There's going to be uh, stricter rules around what qualifies as a uniform, what qualifies as an as a important purchase for a place like the legislature. So all of those steps are going to be have to put in place to change that. There's a lot of uh, confidence that needs to be rebuilt in the public around this. So changes have to come. They have to come now. Uh, in order for people to have a trust. And I think, Jill, most people lump all of this together, right? They mm-hmm. see these allegations against the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms, and there's some mention of MLAs in the report, and Speaker Pluckett mentions MLAs have broken the law. And, and I think the public, if you ask them about what's going on in the legislature, they would tell you it's politicians who are misspending money. And so I think there needs to be something done around just a better, a better transparency to try to help reshape the thought people have on politicians, which I think is pretty negative overall. Definitely. And and it doesn't seem unreasonable to make the request from taxpayers everywhere that anybody who has unlimited use of taxpayer money should be accountable for it and should be transparent about where they're spending it. Yeah, that should be the goal. Like we should be striving towards that. This is not their money. And there needs to be a way to prove that this is in the public good. Yes, we understand that uh, these public servants need to be able to do their job. These elected officials need to be able to do their job. But to what extent? You know, you look at these things, and one of the things that stood out in the Plekis report uh, to me is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was these vacation buyouts. You know, most British Columbians work hard for their vacation. You know, they go to work every day, they work hard, and then they earn their vacation time. Well, uh, Plekis is alleging that uh, both Craig James and Gary Lenz um, only took a few vacation days uh, and then bought, were paid out for the rest of the vacation, even though they never even showed up at work. You know, they, they took that vacation and still got paid out for it. I think that's egregious for a lot of people because they can see that. You know, it's things around $1,100 suits. I think most people in British Columbia will never own. You know, if you combine all of the suits in their wardrobe, <laughs> won't add up to $1,100. So um, it's things like that that people say, this it just doesn't seem fair They don't need these things to properly do their jobs, and uh, we should uh, hold them more accountable because of it. Well, yeah, and who needs to take vacation days when you're taking trips to London and to Mariners games and going whale watching on the public's dime? Yeah, exactly. And that's what this report has helped us look at and understand. Again, they're all allegations. Uh, I visited uh, Craig James's house on Friday, uh, and... Uh, knocked on the door he didn't answer and then when we backed away he came to the door and asked for us to turn the camera off and told me he couldn't speak uh, because his lawyers had advised him not to but he did tell me a a few interesting things that i can tell you and he said that they've had lawyers look through the plecus report and there's nothing there that's criminal in nature so you know you and i have alluded to that i think that's one step to get out of the way but uh, the next thing he said uh, is that they're happy that this independent uh, the retired judge has been brought into place, put some fresh eyes on it, but he didn't deny uh, any of the other spending things. And he, and he really hopes that he'll be able to clear the air on this at some point when the lawyers allow him. But I think there is a lot of explaining to do about why he believed that these trips, like you mentioned, to Seattle, whale watching, 
to the UK, you know, a cultural trip to the St. Andrews Golf Club gift shop, why all of this was appropriate. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, a big by-election coming up. Yeah. A lot of people will be watching uh, what happens in Burnaby because it deals uh, with the leader of a federal party. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to Jagmeet Singh uh, last week on Thursday morning. Uh, he is running in the Burnaby South by-election. Uh, that's on the Global BC Facebook uh, page if you want to see it. Uh, the He is trying to finally get his seat in the House of Commons. He became the leader of the federal NDP in 2017. He's been seatless since. He's running against uh, former longtime B.C. Liberal MLA Richard T. Lee, who's running for the federal Liberals. Jay Shin is a lawyer running for the Conservatives. Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson is running for the People's Party of Canada. Uh, Obviously, all eyes are on Jagmeet Singh here. Uh, This riding uh, is new. First election was 2015. It was very close between the NDP and the Liberals in that riding. So we have to think that Richard T. Lee is the the toughest challenger. But the Conservatives historically uh, either won or ran second in a similar riding to this in the past. So it's going to be an interesting race. Uh, I'm going to be in Burnaby South tomorrow. We'll have lots of coverage on uh, BC1, a live special starting tomorrow night at 7. Uh, it's going to be, because of Singh in it, it's now become a very important by-election. If he loses it, there's serious questions about whether he can continue on as leader or whether the, uh, and whether the knives will be out to try to, to get him out before the, the general federal election in October. Oh, I think they will be for sure, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think? I think he has put a team around him that could protect him. Uh, but and it would be very hard to find a, a leader for October. But he's going to have a really tough go. You know, the, if he loses this by-election, it will send a very strong sing- symbol signal to Canadians that the NDP is is almost irrelevant here, and that it's a race between the Liberals and the Conservatives. If he can win, he can show some relevancy. I just don't know uh, who that magic solution is for the NDP uh, if he ends up losing. So it, it, they would have a real look themselves in the mirror moment, the NDP would, uh, if Jagmeet Singh can't win tomorrow. And it's been a little nasty. I don't know if you'd seen, and yeah. I mean, I saw it on Twitter, so it must be true, the the yeah. flyer that's been handed out or that some people are seeing in that uh, in that area. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, our colleague Keith Baldry tweeted about it at one point, and, and, you know, that they are, this is one of these ideas that a vote, for the Conservatives is actually helpful for the NDP. And I think this idea that uh, you could get rid of Jagmeet Singh because that's the best thing that the NDP needs. It was, you know, the, the flyer is one of those things that was hard to understand. Also, they had this crazy debate earlier in the middle of this week where, you know, they were calling each other racists and homophobes and the crowd started yelling at Jagmeet Singh. Like it became, it's become very, very personal that, you know, there's been this really strong current of um, race and ethnic background through this whole campaign, right? You'll remember back to Karen Wang, who was the liberal candidate, uh, saying on a Chinese social media platform that uh, she was Chinese-Canadian, uh, people should vote for her that are Chinese-Canadian, and Jagmeet Singh is of Indian descent. Uh, you know, we've seen this the emergence of the People's Party of Canada, uh, which has brought in some more right-wing ideologies into all of this. So there, this, this strong undercurrent of race has been uh, really interesting to watch and I think very divisive uh, in a conversation about diversity. It is a riding more than 40% are 
Chinese speaking. Uh, if you look at the census data, um, they are uh, describe themselves as Chinese Canadian. It's more than those that describe themselves as white or of European descent. So uh, it's a really interesting cultural writing, and this this idea of uh, racism and, and of race and diversity has been a really big one in the campaign. All right. Uh, look forward to your coverage of that tomorrow. Richard, thank you so much. My pleasure as always, Jill. Thank you.